You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. Later in the program, WFHB's Youth Radio took to the streets to ask Bloomington residents about the U.S. Supreme Court's draft leak over Roe v. Wade. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, Civic Conversations, our monthly podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. All that coming up in today's edition of the WFHB Local News. Up next, WFHB's Youth Radio took to the streets to ask Bloomington residents about the U.S. Supreme Court's draft leak over Roe v. Wade. This is Voices in the Street. WFHB's monthly public opinion feature, providing the members of our community the opportunity to have their voices heard. On May 3rd, 2022, a draft of the Supreme Court's latest ruling on Roe v. Wade was leaked to the public. The ruling, which plans to overturn Roe v. Wade, sparked outrage among the populace here in Bloomington. We took to the streets to ask local residents, Have you heard the recent news of Roe v. Wade potentially being overturned? How do you feel about it? It's just really unsettling and discomforting to know that like, that right could be taken away. And also, it just doesn't really make any sense and it's confusing how we're going back in time right now. I feel disgusted. I feel like a woman should have a choice over their own body, especially if they're the ones carrying it. It's kind of important to have choice of your own damn body. I'm shocked, honestly. That's what I think. I'm like, who is in like the Senate? I'm thinking, like, what kind of people are these deciding? It's, like, it's just, it doesn't make sense. It's deeply upsetting. Yeah, I don't like it. As a female <laughs> and a human. If they can take that away from us, what else can they take? I was like kind of like scared for other people because like if they were to get rid of Roe versus Wade, they would come after like LGBTQ rights. We're going backwards in we should our have, rights. Like rights over our bodies and it shouldn't be a government opinion. Everyone's pro-life until it comes to the actual like raising of a human being. Men have absolutely no control over women. How do you think this will affect midterm elections? I think people are confused how a Democratic Party ended up making this decision. I think people will probably show up for the Democrats more than they were planning on it. That's fair, yeah. I'm Absolutely. not sure if it'll make a difference, though. In a sense of, like, 
how polarized things are, things aren't going to change. I think people are finally beginning to like change their minds a little bit. The tides are turning that even conservatives are less pro-life than they used to be. I'm kind of scared, you know. I'm just like also scared because we don't know what the future holds for women and yeah. other minorities. I feel like for the first time in history, a lot of people are against the Republican Party and their views. Maybe that's just me being biased. I think a lot of people vote based on Republican or Democrat and not many people look into what these people support. I have a lot of problems with the idea of just vote it out, just vote, vote, vote. Like if we voted more, this wouldn't have happened. I don't think voting is really the way to fix any of this. While it is important to vote, I don't think it's gonna fix the broader problem in our system. I would like to think Probably. that in a positive light that it would encourage more people to be more active with their voting power because that's how these types of things get changed. We still have a lot of of the old generation that thinks this way and they very well may put their thoughts out there before we can, before the younger generation can. And I think that they may win just because younger generations don't vote as much as they should. Like it's not just like women's rights or abortion rights. It's like you leave it up to the state to decide like all other things. So they would also decide whether like the LGBTQ people like get rights or like other minority communities and like some of like the rules that have been put in place could also be overturned because now it's like up to every state rather than like the federal government. How do you think the draft being leaked will influence the justices' opinions moving forward? I don't think it'll change much. Seems like most of their minds are made up. They might change their opinions in the official like report if they do anything since they saw that people are already protesting for it, even though it hasn't been official. Because obviously they don't really care about people's opinions at this point. I think they'll try and cover their butts a lot in coming back on what they say. I really don't understand how this is an issue that's being ruled on when gun violence in high schools and elementary schools and just primary schools in general has not had any legislation or ruling from the Supreme Court since Columbine. I think that there's like a loss of trust from the public right now. People's opinions, I think like if they don't get to like the majority of like Senate seats, I feel like no matter what we think, like it's not going to affect anything. So it's really like the, the system is so rigid that you have to actually be like those opinions have to be reflected in the system for any change to happen. Especially after seeing the reaction that it's getting, I think they're definitely going to see that and react off of their reaction. I mean, yeah. that's what most politicians do anyways. So. But I don't think they're going to be like, what? Everyone's mad? Just kidding. They're going to probably be more secretive now. I don't know that the public pressure will do anything. Yeah. I feel like it won't. There's already like being movements and rallies for yeah. it already, and it's not even confirmed for right. like the draft. But yeah, like, it definitely has an impact on it. They're picketing outside of the, the buildings and stuff. It seems like it's going to be dangerous for them to keep it that way. You have like a lifetime appointment and the only reason they're worried about it getting leaked is because like I don't think justices have security. So like they're worried about the potential of people assassinating them or whatever. Maybe don't make bad rulings and you wouldn't have the potential yeah. to get assassinated. Um, Definitely gives them like public pressure to, I mean, yeah, obviously we've made it known, not us, but like women and people have made it known that this is really upsetting and wrong. So hopefully like that makes them feel more pressured to make the right decisions. They use their freedom of speech to express to the public. I mean, they freedom of press. They went to the press. What else are they supposed to do? I'm not even sure. Like, I trust the system. Do you think incoming candidates will base their platform around reproductive rights more than before? 
if they feel like Americans feel so strongly about this, no matter what side you're on, they're gonna base majority of their campaign on it. That goes for like gay marriage and stuff like that as well. It's gonna probably be a deal breaker for them if they support it or don't support it for a lot of people. I definitely think they'll talk about it more, more yeah, than they have. For sure. I saw like a lot of think pieces that were like, conservatives against what's happening with the leaked opinion and everything. Those like left or leaning Republicans, I think are gonna get more vocal as well as the more conservative ones. Yeah. Just on different sides. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think maybe just a little bit. I don't, I don't see much changing in that sense. I mean, it's been a platforming position for like ever. Both sides want to use it as their own little like loop in to get people to vote for them. The Republican Party, if you actually look at how long it took them to change Roe versus Wade, they really were hanging on to the idea that they're going to fix it or like in their mind fix it for their constituents because it's what got people to turn out to vote. They only took action when they had like, I guess, overwhelming majority in the Supreme Court. Incoming politicians are probably going to talk more about abortion and Roe versus Wade since they might want to get more vote either to stop it or to still have Roe v. Wade. I think it's going to be emphasized as an issue that's like a cause for concern right now, so that's probably going to be more discussed now. Do you think the opinions of the Supreme Court justices reflect the opinions of the general population? Not at the moment. That's because like, I haven't heard like <clears throat> any one person like, speak for it, you know? Absolutely not. The majority of them are on one side and I know that this country is divided and so they don't give actual voting Americans any chance. I don't think that it reflects the opinion of, of the population because I've seen like a lot of like graphs and like data where it says that more than half of the population is in support of abortion and it was like 30 percent that wasn't so I think the Supreme Court just doesn't represent the majority of the people in this country. We don't even vote for Supreme Court justices. We only vote for presidents. And we only vote for presidents that could potentially have the opportunity to change a Supreme Court justice because of lifetime appointments. And even then, the presidents that we're electing, we have no say in who they're actually picking as Supreme Court justices. I don't think it reflects opinions of the general public. I just think it reflects, like, the people who are on the Supreme Court and their personal beliefs, because obviously it's not aligning with the general public right now. Some people might not actually be saying what they actually think, but what they think, like, you know, you know, everyone's going to accept. But then, like, when it's time to vote, they're going to vote what they actually feel is right. So, like, it's really hard to tell who's really, you know, for it, because, like, are they really saying this because they believe it, or they believe that this is what's socially right in the eyes of other people? Considering the like outcry I've seen, like I've seen a lot of people against it, like men and women speaking out against the overturning of it, but I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people who aren't speaking out. I wouldn't say it reflects the majority of people's beliefs. They choose what they want to rule on here and there to make people happy. I don't think their decisions reflect the common person almost ever. They're out of date. Where do you feel the power of decision making towards abortion rights going in the future? Like, if the system changes to allow some of this reflection, it might. But currently, I don't think the power lies in the people, you know. That's sad. I don't, I don't think so. I think the fact that this is even a discussion that we're having, like, if the power lies in the people, would have, like, shut it down immediately. But this was, like, something in the works. Like, it had to be leaked for us to even know about it. Imagine if it wasn't. We'd just be shocked, like, oh. So I don't think as it is, like, the power lies in the people.
that's just how this country is. I don't think it should be like in the hands of the judicial system. I think it's not really anyone's decision to make what happens to a woman's body, what she chooses to do. But my hope is, is that is the people that will get to decide in the end. I would hope that this is not something that's going to last very long. I don't think overturning Roe versus Wade is going to stop abortion, though. What it's going to do, if anything, is stop healthy, safe medical abortions. It's going to increase like backdoor, back alley abortions. My mom is conservative but pro-choice, and she said that Roe v. Wade, she thinks it's poorly written, but that Congress should pass a law to make it legal. Yeah. That's an example of one person's opinion. I don't know. I'm much further left than she is. I think maybe after the Supreme Court sees how people are protesting and going to the Capitol, they might give the power back to the people. I don't really think it'll happen, but it could happen. Autonomy-related issues should always be in the favor of public opinion, you know, like, if it's a decision it's about our bodies, about, yeah. then it shouldn't be up to, like, government or politics. It should be up to, like, who it's affecting, you know? It shouldn't be a group of men deciding what I do with my own body. All interviews were conducted by Marty Abedi, edited and produced by Wilder Mouton. This has been Voices in the Street, WFHB's monthly public opinion feature of candid, local commentary about our world today. Voices in the Street is a volunteer-powered joint production of our news department and youth radio program here on WFHB, 91.3 and 98.1 FM, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Now it's time for Civic Conversations, our monthly podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. In today's episode, host Jim Allison speaks with Joe Lee, the author of Forgiveness, the story of Ava Kaur, survivor of Auschwitz twin experiments. We turn to host Jim Allison for more. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1, 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Joe Lee. Joe is a political cartoonist an author and graphic novelist of the book called Forgiveness, the story of Eva Kaur, survivor of Auschwitz twin experiments published last fall. Joe, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you, Jim and Becky. It's great to be here. Now, we'll want to know, of course, about the story of Eva Kaur, but first, perhaps you could tell us just what is a graphic novel? What are its distinguishing characteristics, would you say? Well, a graphic novel is a story form wherein pictures, illustrations drive the narrative as much as a text does. And it's, um, I think of it as like having a drawn movie that you can control in your hands. 
And it also gives the um, illustrator a greater you know, variety of kind of things that you can throw in to a story. So instead of describing uh, a particular thing with, you know, words, you can just draw the picture and people have an immediate kind of reaction to that. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an old form. I think it's probably in some ways, uh, even before text, there, there were graphic novels. If you look at medieval church windows or cave paintings, they're all forms of that. Okay, so it's kind of a movie book, you might say. Yeah. Okay, now, you're also a political cartoonist. And let me ask you, are political cartoons still a viable medium in today's political world? Or have internet memes sort of replaced political cartooning? What do you think? Well, we live in a world where newspapers, which was the, the home of political cartooning for so many years, are going out of business. And so it is, in some ways, an art form that is changing. But I don't think a meme is exactly the same thing because it, it isn't intentional in the way a political cartoon is. And anybody can pick it up and send it along. Whereas when I do a cartoon, I actually have, I send it to an editor who looks at it to make sure nothing is misspelled, that it it is able to be understood. And also, I, I have to say, I have signed a contract wherein I am the only one responsible for that. So if there's ever a situation that becomes libelous, it's me <laughs> that's not the right. paper. Yeah. And I think that's very different than a meme. <laughs> oh, it is indeed. And uh, you go through a, a political process uh, that memes don't. Okay, that's a big, big difference. Uh, let's talk about Art Spiegelman. Recently, Art Spiegelman wrote a very famous book called Mouse, spelled M-A-U-S, which is German for mouse. Recently, Art Spiegelman's mouse has been in the news again. And his book won a Pulitzer Prize back in 1992. And it's set in World War II with Nazis drawn as cats in brutal persecution of Jews who were cartooned as mice. Now, not too long ago, when a Tennessee school board banned the use of mouse in the classroom, what did you think about that? Well, it was an insane and uneducated, I have to say, for a school board to actually decide to ban a book that is that recounts his uh, Spiegelman's parents' personal experience during the Holocaust, and in their case, very very tragic consequences that that um, the memory of the Holocaust they could never get to any point of even though their lives continued, the devastation finally destroyed the family. So. To ban that, I think what it really accomplished was it introduced and reintroduced Mouse to a wider audience um, because immediately um, his sales very 
importantly went up. So I think that is always a great way to counter this kind of, of repression is to, hey, read it, buy it, support it. Book banning is a terrific uh, stimulus to sales, isn't it, usually? <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it was good for him. Okay. Uh, what was it about Eva Cora's story that uh, grabbed you? How exactly did it come to your attention? Well, Eva was a local survivor of the Holocaust. She had grown up as a child in Romania. And then after her experience during the Holocaust by being um, in Auschwitz-Birkenau, she um, went back to Romania and then eventually um, immigrated to Israel where she met another survivor who had actually uh, immigrated to Terre Haute, Indiana. So she was a very well-known local uh, survivor who spent the uh, last 20 or 30 years of her life working to get her story out and the wider story of the Holocaust, and especially the children who had been part of the Auschwitz twin experience, uh, experiments. And so she worked tirelessly to get that story out. Okay, now you talked You've talked about how Eva's oppositional nature kept her and her sister alive. What exactly did you mean by her oppositional nature? Well, she was one tough little cookie. Um, I think she just refused whenever to always knuckle under to authorities. So to survive Auschwitz, uh, there was a point that she was sick. She was separated from her sister. And even though she was she was in an infirmary, which was infirmary only in name, it was not really a place of any healing. She decided she was going to survive and have her sister, who turned out to be the last remaining member of her family, still alive. Um, she was going to do everything to the point of, as they called it in Auschwitz, uh, organizing, which is to take things for their own survival. So she organized potatoes, and which may seem trivial, but when you think that was an immediate death sentence, was to take a potato from the kitchen. And she refused, actually, even after having been caught once and surviving, that she was going to continue doing it to get out of there. So that drove Eva, um, even with her, when she finally got to the, the point of forgiveness, that as a way of saving, not her own soul, um, it was, she did it through this cantankerous Eva way. And she spent the last day, full day of her life with us in that hottest, um, on record weather in Europe, she spent it half that day, hours and hours with us at Birkenau. And under, we finally found the only shade tree that you could find in the main camp. Um, so she wanted, she had this incredible 
will to live and to keep this from happening again. Okay. She was acting like a superhero. Did she look like a superhero? Well, that's one thing. I'm glad you bring that up. Because when um, I first um, talked to the museum about doing this, um, she did not quite understand. And this was conveyed through the education, the education director who was the interim um, director of the museum at the time, Leah Simpson. She didn't quite understand what a graphic novel or a graphic biography was. And she, um, so Leah explained to her, well, it's like an extended comic book. And at that point, Eva asked, well, a comic book? Is he going to make me a superhero? <laughs> and I assured them that even though Eva truly was a superhero, there would be no spandex involved in this story. <laughs> no spandex. Okay. No what spandex. a disappointment. No spandex. Yeah. Okay. I guess we can <laughs> okay. live with that. I think Eva might have actually enjoyed that. But, you <laughs> she know. might have, yeah. <laughs> now, Joe, you actually visited Auschwitz-Birkenau. So what were your impressions from your visit and how did that visit contribute to the novel, if it did? Well, oh, it it was enormously valuable. My first visit was that one with Eva. So here I was with the person I was researching. I was doing a book on. So that was incalculably important. But also to be in a place where it is the, um, I think, a sacred place. And sacred because of the incredible suffering that happened there, where one people criminally, insanely decided to destroy members of a group, groups of other people. The, the Jews, uh, a million Jews, died in Auschwitz-Birkenau on its own. Gypsies, who they, who knows how many tens of thousands of the uh, Roma people were killed overnight when they decided to liquidate the um, Roma camp. Um, gays, who just because of this sexual orientation were considered somehow evil and had to be destroyed, and on and on and on. So to be in a place like that, that is really is made sacred by the suffering. And it's it's important. Um, I think if people get a chance to go there, especially with a group like from the Candles Museum, and they were hoping to get there again this summer, but the war in Ukraine, where here we're revisiting some of the same things that happened in the 40s. Um, but And they will go again. But it's important, if one can, to see this place, to experience it. Um, and much of the Birkenau doesn't exist the way it does, but the famous, um, well, the, the building where the trains entered is still there. And but Auschwitz itself, which were brick barracks, had originally been a, a military um, barracks. They have exhibits. It's an incredible thing to experience. Yeah. 
I can see that. Let's talk a little bit about your father. Your father is a World War II veteran, as mine was too. Mm -hmm. But in World War II, your father's unit actually liberated a work camp in Germany. Did his experiences there influence your book? Did he tell, talk, to you, did talk to you about that at all? Yeah, he did. Uh, I know a lot of veterans don't talk about those kinds of things that they experienced. But in his case, I think it was first it was introduced because he had a, a book that told the history of the Third Armored Division, of which he was a part. And in that, there were photographs of the liberation. But Dad was, um, he was more open about this. He actually, um, after the war, he spent four years in a TB sanatorium and, and finally got a um, total disability given his experience. But I think he wanted us to know um, about the depth of this kind of depravity that went on. So they liberated this camp. They saw the bodies. This was a concentration camp, a work camp. It wasn't a death camp, but there was so much death. And the evil that was done, even in a camp like this, was incalculable. So his experience of seeing that and actually being able to witness um, in these photographs, and there are archival films of the liberation of the camp and the local villages being taken to see what was done uh, in the name of the German people, their people. And, and Dad had a great deal of respect for his general, who was one of the, the few Jewish generals in the American army, General Maurice Rose, and um, so, who had been killed during the war. And so I think he really did want us to know about that. Um, so it, it made a difference. Okay, I can see that. Joe Lee, thank you very much for being with us this afternoon. And to, our, and to our listening audience, thank you for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, we'll be talking to Jody Madeira, professor of law in the IU Maurer School of Law, and Louis F. Neeser, faculty fellow, co-director, Center for Law, Society, and Culture. And we'll be talking to Jody about legalities of women's reproductive health, a very timely topic, I must say. <laughs>